This is CX of M Radio, the voice of customer experience professionals. Welcome to another episode of the Tom and Bob Show, where each week we discuss best practices in the field of customer experience management. I'm Tom DeWitt, Director of CXM at MSU, and I'm joined by my co-host and partner in crime, Bob Keipel, Vice President of CX of M and retired Global CX Executive with General Motors. Without further ado, let's get this show on the road. Hello and happy Juneteenth, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Tom and Bob Show. I'm Tom DeWitt, and I'm joined by... Bob Keipel. Uh, today, we're fortunate to have Angela Hall. Angela is the Associate Director of the School of Human Resources and Labor Relations at Michigan State. Uh, we brought Angela on today to talk about um, a couple topics that are on the top of everyone's mind today. Um, the coronavirus and, and, and the reality that many of us are working from home, as well as um, the Black Lives Matter movement um, and the topic of racial equality in the workplace, um, as well as 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 rest of our lives. So um, don't worry, it'll just be like a six-hour podcast. So get a comfy chair. Here we go. Yep, there's plenty to talk about, and and do this all in 20 minutes. So hi, Angela. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Hello, Tom and Bob. Um, let, let's start by talking about the coronavirus. I, I know um, we, we've all been working from home uh, with different levels of effort and and ability. Uh, what about what about when when it's time for everybody to go go back to work? Some some companies are beginning to announce when em employees are going to go back, and I'm sure much like the fact that uh, people are hesitant to go to restaurants right now. Um, are employees going to be hesitant to go back to work due to health concerns? And if so, what measures can companies take to help employees to deal with that? That's a great question, Tom. So first of all, I think some people will be anxious to go back. It's hard working at home. It can be noisy and distracting. There's not, you don't have like um, your whole setup like you have in your office, um, your ergonomically correct chair. But then there's going to be a great percentage of people who are going to be afraid to go back because they're afraid that they're going to um, contract the uh, coronavirus and they're not only going to put themselves in jeopardy, but the people with whom they live in jeopardy when, it, when they bring it back. I think people are scared of the fact that not everyone is going to comply. Since um, here in Michigan, um, the, some of the restrictions have been lifted lifted i've even noticed anecdotally when i go to the grocery store like some people may not be wearing masks or practicing correct social distancing and i'm sure people are going to be feeling that how are they going to have compliance in the workplace you know the the, the, the initial science that we have on this says that the way to cut down on uh, uh, disease transmission is for everyone to wear a mask well if people aren't wearing masks um, well then that puts other people at risk and you know, practicing good hygiene, and then interacting with customers or like people who may have a, a customer-facing job situations where uh, some people can't wear masks because of medical Ill illnesses, 
or because um, children under a certain age, they, they typically aren't wearing masks. So I know a lot of people are going to have anxiety about coming back to work and feeling what they may be exposed to. You, you bring up a really good point uh, of companies finding it challenging to um, enforce guidelines they provided. Do you envision the possibility of employees coming to work, um, much like I, I did going to a restaurant last night and finding nobody's wearing a mask, they're not practicing um, social distancing, and then having employees saying, I refuse to come to the workplace. Um, you're not protecting me. Uh, I'm going to work from home. What, what, what are, what are, you know, we know that's going to happen. What, what, how, should, how should companies respond to that? What's their recourse? I think that um, employees, I think companies have to do kind of two things. So first of all, you should have management um, be, be very supportive of the employees as far as um, encouraging uh, them to wear their masks and practice social distancing, discipline the employees who do not. Um, if you have a forward-facing job and you have to interact with customers or clients, um, asking them to engage in proper social distancing and wearing masks. And if they if they aren't doing that, sometimes they may have to be the bad guy and you know say, hey, um, could you put on your mask, please, in a respectful way, or ask someone to leave, or say, can we do this transaction over the phone or things like that? Because you have to protect your employees. I know there's a there's a mindset sometimes that the you know the customer is never wrong. But the best way to serve your customers or your clients is to make sure that you have happy, safe, healthy employees. Yep. I have a sort of a follow-up question. You know, your title has to do with HR, human resources, and labor relations. And in a lot of companies, there are people who work at the company, but they cannot. They never could work from home. Uh, because of their function, and now you're going to maybe be mixing in people who might have this sort of problem, they say, and with air quotes, that, oh, I want to stay home and work. How do you uh, manage a relationship uh, between the employees that maybe have different situations? Very good question. So this um, pandemic has really shown the difference between the haves and the have-nots. And that really kind of makes segue into our next conversation that we're going to have. Um, because the people who get to work from home are, are basically um, white-collar workers, um, workers who are, are more educated, workers who are higher paid, people who are frontline workers. I mean, they're exceptions. Like doctors have to go into work unless you do yep. telemedicine. Um, is that it's, um, it's the lower paid, lower ranking people who have to be face to face. And they're the ones who are the most at risk of contracting. So one thing that organizations can do is to limit the number of people that other people come in contact with. So to the extent that people can work at home, still encourage people to do to work at home. And then make sure for the people who have to come in that you provide them with proper um, PPE, so uh, personal protective equipment. Make sure you provide them at hand sanitizer. Make sure that you have signage around the customers and clients reminding them to practice social distancing. Um, rewarding, doing spot rewards. I'm a very big advocate of spot rewards. Saying, you know, giving like gift cards or something like that, um, or even just like stickers. Some people um, like those stickers um, to, to reward an employee that they catch 
doing the right thing as far as social distancing and uh, and uh, good sanitation. You don't do it every time because you know it would it would lose its meaning their, its meaning if you do it every time. But to reinforce the behaviors that you want to see. Uh, because you really have to protect those frontline workers. Essentially, you have no business if you don't have the frontline workers providing the business yeah. or the services. Yeah, and uh, it seems like ongoing, you're going to need to have some kind of a system in place that actually says what the behaviors need to be because Absolutely. this isn't going away right away. You need to work with HR. You need to work with your safety people. You need to work with frontline managers. You may even have to work with people in operations to modify the type of behaviors that they have um, going on. You know, because a lot of things that we've done in the past, you know, we, we have these practices that we continue to do because we've done it in the past. But that doesn't mean it's the ideal way. We need to think about redesigning how we do things so that um, it can be safer for everyone. Yeah. Hey, Tom, is it okay if I sort of transition into the next a little bit? Yeah, so this kind of, I mean, if on first blush, it sounds like we've got two totally different topics here, coronavirus and Black Lives Matter, but they obviously overlap here. And right now we're really seeing a lot of demonstrations and we're seeing what some people would call like eyewash from CEOs and companies making statements and of support and things like this. Um, as a pragmatic person talking to leaders listening to this podcast, um, what can we do actually put in place as company leaders to make sure that we really are making changes that'll stick? That's a great question, Bob. You know, I, the, the relationship between the Black Lives Matter and the um, pandemic, you know, at first blush don't look like they overlap, but they do. Um, the, the pandemic has highlighted how um, a lot of frontline workers, essential workers, people who are at the most at risk are doing all of these services for us and, um, you know, the disparities that occur in the workplace. So what are some things that can be done to, um, you know, so it just doesn't seem like they're playing lip service? You know, the statements are, are good. It makes it uh, from someone high in the organization, the president, and things like that, but it needs to be followed up with action. So things could be like um, developing policies um, such that in, employees are rewarded for their commitment to diversity. Like for example, when they're doing hiring, what kind of recruitment efforts do they have to have a diverse work pool? Um, doing things like uh, having formal mentoring systems in place. So the studies have shown that um, you know, a lot of times people have a tendency to gravitate toward people who are like themselves for mentoring. And as a result, sometimes women and minorities don't receive the same type of mentoring from people higher up in the organization. And it's not because it's like an overt discrimination. It's just that like, like, like. But when you have formal mentoring programs where you can mentor people to, uh, of color, so that they can get into leadership roles and progress into their careers and be in positions and, and be mentored and such that they're in the track to be in leadership positions themselves. That's another important thing. Another thing is to do is to make sure that you're looking at the policies that you have in place in the organization and um, you know looking at them with a diversity and inclusion lens. For example, um, facial recognition software. Some organizations use that in, um, you know, for 
security and monitoring, or they may even use spatial software in the uh, hiring practice. Well, this, but we know um, that, the, that the science behind that is that it doesn't work as well with darker skin, skin tones, and the facial recognition software is not as accurate. So maybe trying to, for example, retrain the algorithms that are doing the identification, doing alternative methods, but making sure that you don't have policies and practices in place that um, reinforce discrimination, whether it be overt or conscious discrimination or um, averse or subtle discrimination. Let's, Angela, let's turn the discussion to customer experience. Um, we've seen some pretty vivid examples of racial discrimination. Um, in relationships between service personnel and the customer, probably the, the most widely publicized the example of Starbucks um, manager calling the police when there, were, when there were two black customers waiting to meet a friend. Um, uh, I, I've seen some other examples online line that, in, that include uh, racial profiling in, in the retail space, uh, following following black customers, asking them to leave the store if they weren't going to buy anything. Um, as you and I know, most racial prejudice comes from our, our upbringings and, and, and our surroundings and the values that our parents and other people that we're, clo we're close to uh, have, have bestowed us with. And, and I guess none of us are innocent in that regard. We all have a certain level of, of prejudice and, and, and stereotypes that we may or may not ascribe to. Um, given that, you know, when you think about, when we talk about hiring practices, how do you, you know, a, a couple of things. So we've got that, and then we also have organizational culture. And, you know, where we create a culture that is based on certain values that we want to inculcate in employees, and we want them to put on display in their behaviors. So from an HR standpoint, um, and I don't, for lack of a better word, I don't know what else to say, but how do you screen for racial prejudice in the hiring process? And then secondly, how do you create an organizational culture where employees don't have this knee-jerk reaction to kick into a mode where they're, 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 they're profiling customers and acting on it? Wow, those are... <laughs> Good luck. Good luck with this question. <laughs> it's, it, am, I, am I wrong? I mean, you know, you know, as much as we, we, we try to interview for customer, individual customer centricity and, and, and empathy and all the things we want to see in, in, in service personnel, how do you assess someone's uh, openness to diversity, racial and otherwise? Not just racial, not just ethnic diversity, but but in terms of um, sexual preferences. You know, we have stories about gay customers being um, alienated and and um, and assaulted. How do we how do we how do we screen that, for lack of a better word? So I think it's a good question, great questions, and I think that um, there are things that are in place that can help. You're never going to be able to screen out every quote-unquote bad apple. But um, give when you're during the hiring process, give situational and behavioral-based questions to tap into 
people's commitment to diversity. So for example, a situational question would give them a scenario. What would you do in this situation? And a behavioral question would be, what have you done in the past, for example, support diversity? Or may not, maybe not even be so uh, overt with the question. You know, it will have something in there, like for example, this is what you could do. Um, there is a good study that was done at, at um, University of Chicago, and then there's another study, some studies done in Wharton, where they had resumes, and they're the same resumes with the same qualifications. They just changed the names, and some of them, the names were changed from a quote-unquote white-sounding name to a quote-unquote black-sounding name, and seeing how people would pick, and all people overwhelmingly chose for the, the names that sounded for white as opposed to black, even though it was the exact same resume. So what you could do is give them um, type of assessment that like that that maybe assess like rank these resumes in order. And if you see that someone is like prioritizing a certain resume over another based on gender or based on like ethnicity or something some type of maybe um, hidden type of bias or maybe overt bias that can be a signal to you. But also having them explain what they have done for. Um, diversity because you know one thing that the whole situation with Black Lives Matter has told us is that um, we you know just standing sitting by and being quiet is not enough you know not only it's not enough to be not racist you have to be anti-racist you have to be anti-sexist you have to be anti anti-semitic in in the workplace and 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 just in general for society to advance and I mean, I, you all can't see me, so I think it's important for me to say that I am an African-American. I'm a first-generation African-American. My parents are from Panama. Um, and so, you know, I've lived some of these experiences, and, I, and, and um, I have anecdotal experiences that, you know, how my, you know, where I've experienced discrimination. But I've also ex experienced a lot of mentorship and, power, and, and empowerment from um, people who are white and, and male. So um, it's a situation where for, for things to improve, it's going to need, you're going to need um, um, uh, energy and activity uh, from a bunch of different people. So let's, let's take that situation in the Starbucks. What could Starbucks have done differently to create a work environment that embraces diversity and also empowers employees um, to recognize when one of their 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 workmates when they're when they're when they're exhibiting characteristics that aren't consistent with those values to to do something about it in the moment. Mm, and that takes a lot of courage. Yeah, yeah, you know, like we when we saw it, we saw it in Minneapolis. Just standing there watching it happen instead of saying no, that's wrong, or, or doing something, but to be, and you end up being complicit. So I, to me, those are, you know, those are two different things, but they're complementary, right? You know, how do we, what, how, how do you get people to embrace diversity and support it, you know, and, and, and how do you get people to identify it in the workplace when it's not being done and to empower them to do something about it? So first of all, training, training, training. Um, that's very important um, to train people to these sensitivities. Now, I know that um, a lot of folks have done the implicit bias training, 
And there's kind of um, mixed feelings behind that. There's an interesting person, Frank Dobbin, at Harvard, and he found that sometimes these trainings actually make people more biased because you, 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 they, they become, I don't know if they become hostile or they become um, they become upset when you point out their biases to them. Mm. So, um, you know, implicit bias training probably isn't necessarily enough. Enough. You can't, there's a question, do you change people's hearts or do you change people's minds? Changing people's hearts may be harder and that may be, uh, so I'm going to do that second. But changing people's minds means letting them know the consequences of their behavior, letting them know the rules, and doing uh, rewarding the behaviors that you want to see occur, and uh, punishing or not reinforcing the behaviors that you don't want to see occur. And so, like you know, you you reward the the managers for. Um, the diversity initiatives. You train them about what to do in these situations, how to de-escalate when these things are happening, for example. That's what you do on the, on the one hand. So that's changing pe people's minds. Changing people's hearts would be doing things like um, allowing uh, uh, employees to have not only like voluntary groups that they can join where they can talk about these issues and have a safe space to talk about it but doing things like having more diversity within the management studies have shown that when you have more diverse people in management you know people are they don't look at the black man coming in as a potential robber or thief they look at the black man as a as a as a person who Oh, that could be my boss. That could be whatever. So habituating and getting people used to interacting with people of different races, genders, ethnicities, um, and having that interaction with not only people who are at the lowest level of the organization, people who are middle and high, um, the studies have shown that that makes people, um, you know, less likely to engage in these types of behaviors because they can put a picture um, uh, they can they can picture like a black face, for example, or Hispanic face. It's not someone who I'm supposed to be afraid of, but someone who I can respect or admire, or who is my you know, in who is my equal. That's very important. And I want to say another quick thing about bias and stereotypes. Everyone has bias and stereotypes. I have bias and stereotypes. You have bias and stereotypes. We're programmed from from birth to have bias and stereotypes. They keep us safe. We see snake bad fire bad it is a it's a part of our primitive mind uh, kicking in to keep us safe but as human beings and people who want to be at a at a higher plane of thought than just being like your base animal instincts we have to learn how to overcome that and you know think logically as opposed to letting that primitive mind kick in thanks angel that that was fantastic and it was a great way to close out the show thanks again for being with us here today Thank you so much. I Thanks. appreciate it, Tom. Good talking yeah, to you, Bob. Great approach. I mean, you talk about the hearts and the minds and uh, changing those and, you know, the pragmatic approaches to and the challenges with both of those. So really interesting. And I hope people will take something from this and actually keep it going and on a you know daily basis and get it into your organization and make it permanent. Absolutely. Well, thank you, listeners, uh, for being here with us today. We look forward to having you as our guest in another episode of the Tom and Bob Show. Have a great week. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Tom and Bob Show. If you enjoyed the podcast, 
Please tell your friends and share it on LinkedIn and Twitter. If you have any ideas or suggestions for future podcasts, send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. After all, you're our customer. Thanks for joining us for this session of CX of M Radio. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit cxofm.org for more resources.